I'm Craig. And I'm Nico. Now, Nico, today we're going back in time to Victorian era London, to the year 1858 to be precise. Now, when we think of this time period, for you, what pops into your head? Let's see, um, horse-drawn carriages and cobblestones, women in big fancy dresses, men with top hats and canes. It seemed like a classy time. Well, I think I agree with you, but that image that you have is quite Hollywood, and although they may be able to portray certain aspects of the mid-1800s, there are certain things that the silver screen simply can't portray. It doesn't bring home to us how much it would have smelled. That's Tony. I'm Tony Bazielis. Author of Building London's Underground, as well as a number of other books on London's industrial history. So people didn't wash as much as they do today, but you've got horses dumping thousands of tonnes of manure in the streets on a continual basis. It wasn't nearly as tame and civilised as we imagine. The, the noise, the noise of all those horseshoes against the, the stone cobbles. In some streets they used wooden blocks because it was more muffled. Um, and it was easier to replace. But you've got a lot of stone blocks there, you've got people shouting, you've got lots of markets. It would have been very, very different, particularly from the sort of sanitised view that Hollywood would like to portray when it shows a scene in Victorian London. And none of that is surprising when we consider that the city of London more than doubled in size between 1800 and 1850, making it by far the largest city in the world. And just to put that into perspective, Paris only grew by half in the same period of time. Let's talk about logistics. With any city growing so fast and an infrastructure not fit to sustain such a large population, things are bound to go wrong. And if there's one thing that everybody does? Exactly. It was the sewage that was failing the city, and you could tell. In the 1830s, when cholera first came to the country from India, and thousands were dying in outbreaks of cholera, everybody thought it was um, not waterborne, but airborne as a contagion. And they thought that for the very obvious reason that sewage smelt. If you could just introduce yourself. Yeah, my name's uh, Peter Basildjet. I uh, work in media and the arts. My great-great-grandfather was Sir Joseph Basildjet, the distinguished Victorian civil engineer. It was John Snow as early as the 1840s, a doctor in Soho, who had these outbreaks of cholera and decided in a very early piece of... um, what you might call organized scientific endeavor and analysis. He got out the map of Soho, put a cross of where all the cases of cholera were, and found that they were grouped around particular waterholes and not others. His evidence included the case of 70 workers in a local brewery who only drank beer and survived. But even with John Snow's independent research being done in 1854, the public health officials weren't quite convinced and proper changes to the city just weren't being made. A certain new fad introduced to London also was creating some problems. The must-have modernization for each house was to put in a WC, a water closet. If houses weren't on the um, main, the the sewers that did exist at the time, then they would have cesspits in their gardens, which people would have to come along, the night soil men would come along at night, and they would have to just dig by hand the sewage out of those pits, which had been roughly solidified by that point, and then they'd take it out to go and put it on the fields around London to grow vegetables. Once the WCs, the water closets, were installed, they were connected to the storm sewers, whose original purpose was rainwater. Those storm sewers connected to the network of rivers in London, like the Westbourne, the Fleet, the Wandle, 
and those rivers ran straight into the Thames. So raw sewage was flowing straight into the Thames, from which three water companies were drawing water for the residents of London to drink. So people were drinking their own effluent. And it wasn't just all the rainwater and the sewage going into the Thames. There were all sorts of contaminants from different industries being dumped in the river, such as chemicals from tanning leather, creating metals, butchering animals. So you can imagine the state of the Thames at the time. Looking at a satirical cartoon from Punch magazine published in 1858, you can really get a feel for the Thames. It depicted a skeleton rowing along the river entitled, Your Money or Your Life. So, the theme of life and death became particularly urgent because people believed in the theory of miasma. Which was the belief that this terrible disease, cholera and other afflictions, were spread through the air because it seemed the obvious thing because you could smell it. So, you had really a perfect storm. And that's why in the summer of 1858, which was a very, very hot summer, there occurred what is known as the Great Stink. In 1858, the smell from the River Thames was indescribable and it was coming up under the windows of the new Houses of Parliament designed and built by the architect Charles Barry. If you want action from a politician, it is thought, you need to affect their personal interests. Because everyone believed in the theory of miasma, which meant that they thought cholera was spread through the air, politicians felt personally threatened. And it wasn't proven until the 1880s by German scientists that cholera was a waterborne bacteria. So, even despite John Snow's theory that cholera was being spread through contaminated water, the public continued to believe in the miasma theory. Florence Nightingale went to her grave in 1907, I think, seven she died. Anyway, early 20th century. Absolutely convinced it was airborne. She wasn't having any of this nonsense about waterborne. Cholera is a miasma. She still believed in miasma. She wasn't changing her views, whatever the science said. Regardless of all this evidence pointing towards problems with the water, politicians began to feel the urgency for immediate action. They soaked blinds on the windows of the House of Commons with chloride to protect them from this affliction. But more importantly, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1858, Benjamin Disraeli, allowed my great-great-grandfather, who was the chief engineer of the Metropolitan Board of Works to borrow three million pounds to execute on his new idea of a sewage system for London, the first metropolitan sewage system for a major city ever in the world. He pushed Parliament to get as much money as he could to build the sewer system that was needed and Parliament didn't need any persuading after the great stink. He had the designs ready, he knew what he wanted to do and he was able to get cracking straight away. So when we spoke, we talked about you know, the origin of the sewers and the fact that the sewers that were built in Victorian times are still in use today. And how, how could that be when London has grown so much? And in part, that was because of the foresight of the Victorian engineers. And Joseph Bazalgette was a, an engineer of the heroic mould. He wanted to build a legacy. People didn't build something and go, well, in 30 years' time, someone can build a replacement for that. They wanted to build something that would last their lifetime and well beyond. At the time, the population of London was around two and a half million. And he overspecced his system so that it would accommodate, he thought, a population of four and a half million. He designed it in a way that meant 
major channels ran east-west to parallel the Thames and take it all down to points in East London on the marshes who were unpopulated, where the smells wouldn't bother people, and most importantly, where there was a large amount of tidal movement on the Thames. So at each ebb tide, when the tide was washing back out to sea, the sewage from the previous 12 hours could be dumped into the river and taken out into the North Sea as fast as possible, which sounds terrible these days, but in those days that was far better than tipping it in upstream, particularly upstream of where people were then taking drinking water out. It's not that his designs ever really failed. He had already adjusted his calculations for an extra one and a half million people. He would have had to quadruple his calculations to anticipate the needs of today's population, which, even for the Victorians, would have been overkill. If you go into the basement of the Institution of Civil Engineers and look at the library, they still have many of Bazalgette's original designs. Every little detail was drawn and prescribed. He had um, special bricks made in Leicestershire for the sewers, which, if you walk through them, have the vaulting of a cathedral. Uh, He pioneered the use of Portland cement, which was quick-drying and allegedly impervious to water. So it was a mixture of brilliant design, extraordinary execution, and innovation. The first hint of success came in 1866, when a cholera outbreak hit the East End, the only part of London not yet connected to the new system, and the rest of London remained unaffected. If you're ever fortunate or unfortunate enough to find yourself in in the sewage network, you'll be shocked at how well-built it is. Uh, Most people can't believe the bricks are 160 years old, and that's because Bazalgette really uh, was one of the first engineers to to test materials to destruction before he installed them. That's Mike Appleton. He was the communications and community engagement manager for Tideway Central when we visited. Going back to the 1860s, you bought some bricks from the local brick merchant. They could be great, they could be rubbish, you just don't know. Whereas Bazalgette insisted, I'm going to test each of these bricks to make sure that they can withstand the pressure that they're designed to, and he really had the first operation of quality control. Of course, Bazalgette wasn't the only design. Really, there were a hundred alternative schemes. And the truth is, each of those schemes is reflected in Bazalgette's, the one they ultimately chose. Not only were there alternative designs, but as is common for any major project, there were plenty of naysayers as well. I suspect if you go back to the newspapers of the time, you'll find all sorts of letters complaining about it. But that's what you have to do to create a major scheme that can be relied upon not only by your own generation, but by your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren yet to be born or conceived. Now, Bazalgette's system was very clever, but it had one major design flaw, which is that it's what we call a combined system. So in older cities around the UK and in North America as well, so particularly places like Portland uh, in the United States, but also Glasgow in the UK, we have a combined system. What that means is when you flush the toilet or you remove a plug from your sink or bath or shower, it goes into exactly the same pipe as the surface runoff from the streets. That all combines to mean that it's uh, whenever it rains as little as two millimetres in London, it now pushes the system beyond its capacity, which means that overflow has to go somewhere and unfortunately at the moment that flow goes into the River Thames. That's why Ferrovi Lagraman have gotten on board to help solve this problem. They're working as part of a joint venture with Lang O'Rourke to deliver the central section of the project between Falconbrook Pumping Station and Chambers Wharf. 
So the Tyway project is all about cleaning up London's River Thames. So the best way to describe it is that we don't really have enough capacity in London's sewage network, which means we're just adding a, a new, great big new piece of capacity, which is a, a, an enormous storage and transfer tunnel, which is going to go underneath the River Thames. So it's not necessarily that the Thames is highly polluted, it's that that pollution hangs around for such a long time, and that's because it get push, gets pushed out in the flow, but then it gets pushed back by the tide. So what that means is if you drop a tennis ball from Waterloo Bridge, it takes three months to reach the, the North Sea. The Tideway Tunnel starts in West London, at a depth of 33 metres, falling one metre for every 790 travelled. It then arrives in Abbey Mills, 66 metres below ground, and is connected to an existing tunnel that heads towards the Beckton Sewage Treatment Works. The new system is designed to intercept 50 cubic metres of water per second. That's 50 tonnes of water, or enough water to fill two petrol tankers. So that means taking the water from the existing system when it's overflowing and putting it in the new one, allowing it to cascade down a 50 meter hole. So that's a huge amount of water. Now clearly, intercepting that amount of water and allowing it to free fall down a 50 meter shaft would simply smash the bottom of the tunnel to pieces. So we actually put it into a vortex and that takes the force out of the water, similar to your bath uh, plug hole. So it, takes the, it puts it into a vortex, speeds up the water, but actually takes the force out of it as it does so and allows it to fall safely to the bottom of the shaft without it smashing the tunnel to pieces. As it goes throughout central London, it um, has a, a constant diameter of, of 7.2 metres. So what that means is you could drive three double-decker buses side by side through the middle of it if you wanted to. So it's an absolutely enormous tunnel. Of course, because that's an internal diameter, we have two linings. We have a primary and a secondary lining, uh, which means that the tunnel boring machines that we're using are 8.8 .8 metres in diameter. So they're absolutely enormous. It's rather nice that engineering today... Uh, owes something to the work of Joseph Bazalgette in the mid-19th century because, uh, to quote a specific example, um, his entire sewage system running from west to east to the mouth of the River Thames relied on gravity to propel the excrement. And so the sewers got lower every mile. And that's exactly the principle of the Thames Tideway Tunnel, using gravity to propel London's or uh, towards its final destination. The only other point I'd make is that um, nobody living today knows what a clean Thames looks like. So for the past 500 years it's been a polluted water course and nobody knows what a clean Thames is going to look like. So we could have some really surprising and quite exciting developments as a result of this project being in place. A big thanks to today's guests, to Tony Badzi-Ellis, Mike Appleton, Peter Bazalgette, and of course, Ilakna Nanthakopin and all of the Ferrovial team. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'm Nicholas Hewson. And I'm Craig Lawless.